Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 6, 2022, and this is show number 878. I invited myself onto the SMR podcast uh, just this last week so that I could talk to Chris Ashley, Rod Simmons, and Rob Dunwood about tech. I wanted to go on the show to talk about how delightful it has been to watch Facebook slash Meta's stock price crash and burn, and I also wanted to clarify some things around Google's new privacy sandbox. We, of course, talked about lots of other fun tech topics as well. It's always just delightful hanging out with my SMR podcast family, so I hope you'll go check it out in your podcatcher of choice. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth. Barbu Schatz taught us the basics of Jest last time for our test-driven development environment. This week, we learned to group our tests using the describe function in Jest. Grouping tests with describe does a lot more than eliminate the need to just comment our code. It also provides more useful output from our tests and scopes what happens inside. As Bart describes it, we climb Mount Jest at one point, as he explains how we can also loop our tests instead of repeating code as we did last time. And we use something called describe.each, which is functions within functions, and there's a lot of head bending with arrays of arrays, and it actually sounds much worse as he tries to describe it than when we actually go through an example and he reads it to us and we get to create one. It's actually not as hard as it sounds, but it, it's, it's very difficult to just describe. Anyway, he then went on to describe ways to run certain uh, setup and teardown functions before and after our tests are run and why we might need to do that. Finally, we get the last cool thing we'll need to understand about Jest, and that's how to use the dot .only and dot .skip modifiers on our tests so that we can focus on individual tests while we're chasing down bugs. For the first time in a long time, Bart even gives us an optional challenge to flex these new Jest muscles. You can, of course, find Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can find Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. Two weeks ago, I told you about the nifty plugin for Safari called Keyword Search. This is the one that allows you to set up little shortcuts to search sites that you visit often. I explained that it works really swell with most sites, but not with static sites like Programming by Stealth. You see, PBS is a static site created by simple markdown files inside of a GitHub repository. Bart and I like to eat our own dog food for the podcast, and it also keeps managing the information much simpler for Bart. I went on to explain a couple of weeks ago that I figured out a workaround by adding in a text replacement shortcut in the keyboard preference pane, and that allowed me to still search PBS. I was chatting with Bart about it, and he came up with a better idea. It's still a little bit of a workaround because keyboard search still won't take you right to the PBS site when you do a search, but it does have a big advantage over my idea. By using the keyboard preference pane to create a text replacement, I have to maintain that one website search in a completely different tool, which kind of adds cognitive load to my brain, which is overloaded on my best day. His alternative will allow me to keep all of my keyword searches in the same tool, all in the keyword search uh, extension. While pbs.bartificer.net can't do search queries, Google, or whatever search engine you favor, can search the PBS pages, and it can create that query string that we need. It was a little more complicated than I expected to be able to figure this out, but it was still pretty easy to do. To search the PBS pages, or any site, using your search engine of choice, simply type the search term followed by site colon and the name of the website, so in our case, site colon pbs.bartificer.net. 
Now, using Google as the example, if I could find out the query string that Google uses for that search, I could put it into the keyword search extension with a placeholder. So I typed module space site colon pbs.bartificer.net into Google, and it dutifully returned a set of results on the Google webpage. I looked at the URL bar, but sadly, it simply said module space site colon pbs.bartificer.net. It didn't even show a URL. It wasn't the search query that it didn't show me any of the search query. So I started writing a message to Bart about how this was not going to work. I selected all in the URL bar. Again, all it said for me visually was module space site colon pbs.bartificer.net. But when I pasted what I'd copied from there into the message, it was the real search query after all. It was extraordinarily long with lots and lots and lots of glop on it. So I, I did put it into the show notes if you want to go see all that glop, but it's like five, six lines of just almost unintelligible stuff. But when I looked at the beginning of the URL, I realized it was pretty simple. The beginning said uh, google.com slash search question mark Q equals module. Okay, Q equals module, that's what I search for, right? That's our, our key value pair, Q equals module. The final step then was to substitute in the placeholder at, at, at for the word module. And that way I have my search query ready to go to plop into the keyword search extension. It's probably better to go read this than to just listen to me here, but it's super obvious when you take a look at what I've been able to paste into the show notes. If you'd like to be able to search static sites with keyword search, or if you prefer seeing your keyword searches inside Google's interface instead of going directly to the site, just copy the string from my notes and plop it into your own extension. My keyboard text replacement achieved the same result, but keeping track of it in one place is going to be easier. Plus, I learned that if I can't find the search box on a given site, or what if I'm just too lazy to do the legwork to figure out the search query for that website, I can always copy this search query I, I created for uh, Google to do BART site, and I can adapt it for any site I like. Basically, we have the best of all worlds now. About a year and a half ago, I started noticing clicks on my audio when I was recording video tutorials for Screencast Online using ScreenFlow. The clicks didn't happen when recording audio for the NoSilicast or Chit Chat Across the Pond, only when recording video. Creating my video tutorials for Screencast Online is really hard. I spend a lot of time outlining what I want to say as I learn the tool I'm going to teach. So when I finally sit down to record, it's very discouraging to have to re-record segments because of problems with the audio. Now, ScreenFlow does have a built-in voiceover tool, so I can re-record just my audio while watching the video go by, but it's tedious and very time-consuming, and rework is always bad. At the time, I talked to Dave Hamilton about the problem, and he suggested it could be that my USB mic interface just couldn't keep up with the data rate I was trying to push through it. My big girl microphone is a Fancy Pants Heil PR40, which has an XLR connector onto it, on it, I should say, so to plug it into a computer, you need either a mixer, which is way more complexity than I ever wanted, and I used to have one of those and I hated it, or you use a mic interface. When I started podcasting, USB was the only way to go. Dave suggested that perhaps a Thunderbolt interface would work better for me. I started doing research and I found out that most Thunderbolt interfaces at the time were Thunderbolt 2, so I'd need an adapter to plug them into my Mac since it supported Thunderbolt 3 with US a USB-C connector. It seemed really silly to me to jump forward in technology from USB to Thunderbolt and then purchase something that's already the older format. I went on a hunt for a Thunderbolt 3 interface. 
J.F. Brissett is the editor who makes my screencast look so good, and he's also a musician, so I asked his advice about finding a new Thunderbolt 3 interface. He suggested I speak with the folks at Sweetwater. I'd never worked with Sweetwater before, but they have almost a concierge-feeling service. You get your own personal salesperson whose job it is to make sure you understand what's available and help you find the right solution. Now, this is open to everybody, not because I'm special. I was assigned to Kenneth, and I explained my requirements. I told him I wanted an interface with only one XLR input. Most interfaces have at least two, and usually way more than two. I also wanted it to be Thunderbolt 3, none of this old and busted Thunderbolt 2 nonsense. I said I wanted it to be small and not cost a house payment. I also positively, absolutely needed a mute button on the front. Well, it turns out there's no such thing. I didn't get the mute button I wanted, and the device Kenneth suggested that came closest was the Universal Audio Apollo Solo, which oddly has two XLR inputs. Why isn't it called the Duo? Anyway, compared to other options, the Solo is not high-priced, but at $700, it was really expensive to me. The main things it had going for it was that it was small, and it was Thunderbolt 3. When I got the Solo in 2020, I told you that I loved it. Looking back at what I wrote, it is very clear to me that I was in the honeymoon period with the solo from Universal Audio. Over time, I've come to loathe this interface. Now, don't get me wrong. The $700 solo absolutely solved the problem I had. Gone were the clicks of my audio when recording with ScreenFlow. I used to have a kind of a slight hiss on my recordings and with the previous interface, and that was completely gone. JF constantly told me how much he loved the clarity of my recordings when I got the new interface. With my previous USB interface, if I monitored my own voice while recording, there was a significant lag, and that kind of makes your head explode. One of the great joys of Thunderbolt is that it's so fast you can monitor your own voice with an imperceptible lag. The Universal Audio Solo was delightful in that way. But I hated pretty much everything else about the Solo. It's been suggested to me many times that I should tell you about products that are terrible, but I never like to do that because I think it's more constructive to tell the company what I don't like so they have a chance to improve it themselves. But after a year and a half of working with Universal Audio trying to get their help with it, I need to vent with you if only for the therapy for me. But before I go on my rant, I do want to say this is probably a perfectly good device, but I might just be the wrong customer for this device. The big problem with the Universal Audio Apollo Solo is the software. To call it bloatware would be an insult to bloatware everywhere. The driver's software, which you absolutely positively must install in order to use the device, is 3.64 gigabytes. I'm serious, it's almost 4 gigabytes. Instead of creating targeted apps for each piece of hardware they sell, it appears that they include every piece of software any of their products might need. I think this is a really lazy approach. For example, in the Universal Audio Apps folder, there's a documentation directory that contains 109 PDFs for every variation of hardware they sell. It's over a half a gig of PDFs. They even got they even have separate PDFs for the FireWire versus Thunderbolt versions of some of their hardware. But that's not all. Universal Audio products come with plugins. When you buy a device from them, you get some plugins for free. I want to say it was like 6 or 7 but they deliver the software with every single plugin you may ever want to buy from them. To be honest, I don't even know how to implement any of the plugins they gave me, how they work, or what problems they solve. It's part of why I say I'm probably the wrong customer. 
But even if I was the right customer and I understood how the plugins add value, I'd still be enormously frustrated by being given every plugin, whether I owned it or not. I'm talking 206 plugins here, folks. Now, I happen to have a large disk on my computer, but the enormous waste of space is only half the problem. These plugins show up in other applications, cluttering my ability to find the tools that I need. For example, Audio Hijack has access to the Apple-supplied audio unit effects. For example, I use the Dynamics processor to sweeten my voice for all of my podcasting. There are around a dozen built-in effects like this on your Mac. Universal Audio added the 206 plugins, the vast majority of which I do not own, into that same selection area in Audio Hijack, so it's nearly impossible for me to find the ones I want. And there's no way to tell which ones I do own of all of the 209 they gave me. Now, one time I spent hours and hours and hours combing through my library folders and other locations where Universal Audio stashes the plugins and other files, and I was deleting them with reckless abandon. But every time you update the software or you need to reinstall, all of these files come back to haunt you. I eventually abandoned this fool's errand and gave in and just let them sit there in my way. Now, I could actually live with the bloatware, but the reliability of the software drove me bananas. If my Mac went to sleep, the driver would crash. I wouldn't be able to use my microphone until I rebooted my Mac. I wrote to support and their answer was, well, don't let your Mac go to sleep. Reminds me of a doctor joke that my dad used to tell. I did explain that it was a laptop, and that wasn't really a very practical solution. Their next answer was to uninstall and reinstall the software. Recall, this download is 3.64 gigabytes, so the time investment just to do the download was enormous. But that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to ask for help and then not follow their advice, so I had to do it. But unfortunately, it's not as easy as reinstalling. You have to uninstall first. The uninstall process involves running the uninstaller that is actually installed when you install the driver itself. If that makes any sense, they give you an un uninstaller. But then the instructions tell, take you deep into the bowels of your user library to extract specific plist files that they've planted in there. So you run the uninstaller, but you still have a bunch more junk to go get rid of. Now, it's not hard for a relatively sophisticated user, but it would be nutty for someone who just wants to make noise into a microphone and didn't have the Mac as their hobby. Uninstalling and reinstalling didn't fix the crashing problem on sleep, so after fighting with Universal Audio for a few weeks, I gave up and I told my Mac it wasn't allowed to go to sleep. But then things got worse. The driver started crashing if I toggled between two user accounts. Now, it takes a full week to record a screencast online video, and during that time, I sure want to be able to use my Mac for other things like writing the show notes for the NoSillaCast. But if I switched to the Screencast Online account and left my normal account open, I'd invariably have to reboot because the driver crashed. Rebooting when doing a video screencast can be a dodgy enterprise because you can't risk the windows moving. I got lucky most of the time, and it wasn't a, a disaster, but it was a giant waste of time. But then, things got even worse. I started having a problem where my voice was completely distorted. Here, I'll play you an example of what it started to do. Isn't that awesome? Well, the central tool I use when doing any recording is Audio Hijack from the most awesome rogue amoeba. I captured the distorted audio you just heard, and with their assistance, I caught Audio Hijacked in the act and collected their debug files, the debug log files, I should say, from Audio Hijack. After a great deal of time spent on this by the most awesome support staff at Rogue Amoeba, they found the root cause. This is what they wrote back to me. 
it seems that the universal audio device you're using is reporting that it is running at some extremely unusual sample rates during your session. 289 megahertz, uh, 294 megahertz, and 403 megahertz, for example. Given that those reported sample rates are reaching up to around 400 megahertz, that is about a thousand times faster than any known audio device can actually operate. The spec sheet for Apollo Solo devices states a maximum sample rate of 192 kilohertz, which points to a device level issue. This meant it was back to the folks at Universal Audio. I'm pretty sure at that point they told me to uninstall and reinstall again, but by this time I was out of patience. I suggested that they send me a new unit to test because this was taking up far too much of my time and it was their turn to share in the pain. After literally weeks, they finally agreed, but then they told me I had to ship mine back to them before they'd send me a replacement. I objected and suggested that they send me the new one and then I would send mine back after I ran the tests, but they never responded to that email at all. After about a month, they simply mailed me an RMA label, which at this point I've just ignored. Because the problem magically stopped happening. For a few months, my Apollo Solo and I lived in relative harmony. Then about two weeks ago, something that should have angered me actually made me smile. I launched Audio Hijack to start a recording, and I got a pop-up window from Audio Hijack that said, quote, the input device, Universal Audio Thunderbolt, has an invalid sample rate. Please check the device and try resetting it. Well, I laughed out loud because I knew that my conversation with the folks at Rogue Amoeba had had an effect. Now, I'm sure this had happened with other interfaces for other people, but I choose to think that Rogue Amoeba created this pop-up window just for me. Now, it did mean my interface was yet again misbehaving, but at least I knew about it before recording. And while most of the problems with the Universal Audio Apollo Solo were catastrophic, they were also the paper cuts. The interface has a plug, a place to plug in headphones so I can monitor my voice. The headphone jack is on the front, which I hate because it means the cable drags across my desk and it requires an adapter because it's a professional 6.35 millimeter jack instead of the more common 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. But that's not even a paper cut. Every once in a while when I go to record, I can't hear anything at all. I spend time going to a sound source from Rogue Amoeba to check my output. I check whatever app I'm using to see if for some reason it's changed the output. And finally, I mess around with the Apollo Solo to get the headphone setting, only to find out that for no logical reason, it has turned the output volume all the way down. And no, I can't use the volume controls on my keyboard to change or even see that. I always try, but instead of showing the volume going up and down, macOS displays a giant circle with a line through it indicating, no, you can't change the audio output volume on the Apollo Solo. As I said, it's a paper cut because it was easy to fix, but it always takes me a long time to realize what's gone wrong. Now, another fun paper cut was that I couldn't use the Apollo Solo as a direct audio input to Zoom. I'm still not sure why only Zoom was affected by this, but for some reason, the Solo would send multiple, I want to say like six or eight separate channels of audio from my mic into the application. Steve described what it was like on the other end as hearing a doubling or tripling or quadrupling of my audio. The only way I could find around this was to always run Audio Hijack and send the output from there into Zoom. Now, I'm obviously pretty comfortable working that way, but it's an extra step that shouldn't be necessary. Every few months, I would do a search to see if anyone else had come out with a Thunderbolt 3 interface so I could ditch this awful device, but I never found any. And then a few weeks ago, the wonderful Marty Sobo did the review for us of the Elgato Wave XLR USB interface. 
As I told you after his review, I bought one for Steve to solve some different problems he was having, and he loves it. I did some reading up on current USB mic interfaces like the Scarlett series so many people enjoy. I wanted to understand why these interfaces work well if my original problem to be solved was that USB was too slow. I forget which interface I was reading about, but they specifically answered the question. They said that current USB USB speeds were not the limiting factor. I wondered if the original diagnosis of my clicking problem might have been incorrect. When Steve's Wave XLR arrived, I immediately stole it, and I ran some tests with it on my own Mac. It worked flawlessly in all circumstances, including the challenging processing with creating video tutorials for screencasts online. No clicks at all. Here's another thing to love about the Wave XLR. Elgato suggests that you install their Wavelink software for use with the Wave XLR, but you can absolutely use the interface without the software at all. Since they didn't make me install it, I downloaded it to see what it's all about. I remember that the mandatory driver download for the Apollo Solar was 3.64 gigabytes. The Wavelink software from Elgato is a tiny 106 megabyte download. Unlike the installer full of plugins I didn't own and don't need to use, Wavelink software could actually be useful. Wavelink provides some of the same functionality as Loopback from Rogue Amoeba. For Mac and Windows, the Elgato Wavelink software allows you to pipe multiple software and hardware audio sources into one virtual audio mix as an input to an application. Now, the problem this solves is that when you want to play audio, say, from YouTube or a music track and play your voice into the same application, Now, the reason the live audience can hear my voice and playback from my audio recording software, Hindenburg, right now is because I use SoundSource to combine the two, my voice and Hindenburg, into one, and then I can pipe that into Discord and YouTube using SoundSource. Turns out Wavelink can do the same thing. Now, Wavelink works with Elgato Wave microphones as well as the Wave XLR interface. So if you haven't bought Loopback for $100 from Rogue Amoeba, or if you're using a Windows machine and so can't use Rogue Amoeba software, a Wave microphone or interface might give you this advanced capability. I haven't installed Wavelink yet, but it might be a fun exercise to do a head-to-head comparison of it against Loopback. Now, you know that I love Rogue Amoeba, but I like to know what's out there that might meet your needs. There's one more delightful thing about the Wave XLR. With your headphones plugged into the back uh, as nature intended, you can monitor your own voice. Agato have managed to make this a very low latency monitor, which means you can stand to listen to your own voice and not be driven crazy by the lag. I think Bart might even be able to stand it. In Marty's review, he explained that the giant knob on the front of the Wave XLR has three functions. You can use it to change the input gain of your microphone or to change the volume output of your headphones. The third option allows you to change the mix of the monitor, meaning you can change how much of your own voice you hear versus the volume of the audio you hear coming out of your system. I like to keep it around 50-50 so I'll know if my audio is peaking, but I can also hear other audio at the same time. The other thing this did that I never got with the Apollo Solo is I've got a darn mute button on the top. Well, in case you're wondering, I bought an Elgato Wave XLR microphone interface for myself. You are actually listening to it through that right now. And I've permanently shelved the bag of hurt that is the Universal Audio Apollo Solo. I do want to reiterate, the Apollo Solo might be perfect for professional musicians or audio engineers, but it was the worst possible solution for me. Now with the Elgato Wave XLR, I can let my Mac go to sleep, I can switch user accounts without having crashing audio drivers, my audio sounds good, just as good as it did before, I don't have weird crazy sample rates, 
and I have basically bought happiness and peace for $150. Nick Box and Trevor Drover are both longtime supporters of the NoSillaCast and the other shows we do here at the Fine Feet Podcast Network. But when they heard about the increased server costs to try and speed up things for all of you, they both went to podfeet.com slash Patreon, and they actually increased their pledge amounts. As I told them both, this will go a long way towards offsetting those new costs to help produce the show. Now, William, Bart, and I may have found one service I could discontinue soon, but to do it, we're actually having to build up a whole new version of the web server. If you'd like to help out to defray the cost of the show, it would be really swell if you became a patron, like Nick and Trevor, or if you prefer, you can do a one-time donation over at podfeet.com slash PayPal. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts, just back from a sunny, beautiful bike ride, huh? Yeah, it was really nice, actually. Um, and the wind was coming yet again from a new, unusual direction. I got to go to the south... Well, what do you call that one that's just south of east? East-southeast? Anyway. <laughs> I have no idea. Direction I don't get to go very often. I did manage to get lost in the charming little town of Clondalkin, where they have this really annoying one-way system. I got very turned around. But anyway, I made it home in time. I had 10 minutes of spare and I used them. Well, I for once have a weather story. We hit uh, 20 miles an hour at my house, 20.6 mile an hour winds yesterday at my house. And uh, while I was running, it was on that order. And uh, I actually told this story on, on programming by stealth. But uh, yeah, I was running and I, I had people who were walking and I was barely passing them and I had to tell them I'm running as fast as I can as I went past them. It's the, the thought of the wind whipping up that sand on the beaches along your neck of the woods that just does not sound appealing at all. Yeah that wasn't exactly what I was looking for in my run that's for sure. Yeah it's been a while since I was in that neck of the woods but I do remember being on Venice Beach on a windy day and it was not fun. And then yeah. the sand banks over the cycle lane the next day were really not fun because bicycles don't like going through sand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, because I was a too. silly foreigner. So I just came around the corner. I was like, whoa, you know, I managed to stay <laughs> on the bike just about. But yeah, that was not, that did not go to plan. Right, right. All right. Okay, so. Should we do it? Yes. Um, a little bit of follow-up. We have been following with crankiness. The story of the Missouri governor going after the journalism or the journalist who had the temerity to view source on an HTML page and notice it was full of social security numbers and stuff. And oh, right, right. When last we spoke, the case had been dropped uh, when the, I think it was the attorney general or the chief prosecutor refused to prosecute. One teeny tiny extra little bit of detail was dropped by Brian Krebs, who, who was also all over the story and very cranky about it. Um, he found out whose responsibility the website was, which department within the government was actually responsible for the site with the breach. The governor's office. Oh, no He way. was deflecting from himself. <laughs> so, charming. <laughs> so, um, the governor's office could be sued for breaching uh, security policies to expose social security numbers. Yep. Yeah, I think they should problem. do that. That would be fun. It would actually be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the next thing, we always talk about stuff going on in social media. Um, and, well, two of these stories are not related to Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, strangely enough, the social media companies 
really going on, you know, anyway. So the first thing is we, you, you have shared with great glee the fact that after they had their sale or their earnings call and they announced that their daily usage numbers had gone down, Meta's share price went down too and stayed down. It fell and then fell a little bit more and, you know. It's- yeah, its initial drop was 25% overnight. And normally you see those drops after an earnings call or something. You don't see anything that big and then they come back up. But this one was actually the largest uh, loss of, of uh, cap market value in history of any Whoa. company. It was, it was, I forget what the number was, but yeah, they, they announced that they lost $10 billion in, um, because of Apple's app tracking transparency and they lost daily active users. They went down by a million. So, uh, and I helped. Yeah, there you go. Um, they, they have now, resp- another thing has happened, which everyone is saying is a response to the fact that they're losing numbers. So, Instagram had a feature where you could configure the app to tell you your time is up for the day. You could set a daily limit so that you wouldn't get sucked in and so you wouldn't end up wasting all of your time on social media instead of doing something useful. And they have changed the settings so you can't stop yourself from spending any less than half an hour. All of the options for 10 minutes and 15 minutes have been removed from the app and you now have to commit to half an hour. Oh my gosh. Which is just slimy. It's like whenever I think I might say something nice about the company, they're just slime balls. And their business model motivates them to do horrible things. And lo and behold, they do horrible things. It's like, you know, motivation works. Like, you know, incentives lay things down. So anyway, that 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 crossed my radar and made me cranky. Um, and then uh, I'm more reporting that Tumblr are, now they're reporting in a slightly snarky way. Tumblr does what Twitter won't, lets you pay to rid it of ads. And I do agree with the sentiment. I would, uh, when Twitter announced they were having a pro plan, I thought, finally, I can pay them money to make the ads go away. And it's like, no, no, you can pay us money for features you don't want. Like, I just want the ads to go away. Um, but there's no option. But uh, Tumblr, were I to be a user, I could pay them to make the ads go away. Um, which I like. So hopefully that business model proves successful and other people copy them. And um, that's the yeah. best outcome. I didn't know Tumblr was still a thing. I feel mean saying that. I Actually, do you know something? I kind of, yeah, I was kind of surprised to see the name still exists. But yeah, there we go. So they're, they're, they're good, good on them. Yeah, good on them. Uh, and then the other obvious story, pretty much like everything else to do with social media that crossed my radar in the last two weeks has to do with basically... The social media companies attacking Russian government propaganda and the Russian government attacking the social media companies back. Um, So these are just in chronological order. Russia is limiting access to meta services because it won't let the country lie. Again, I more have very snarky headlines these days. Um, Meta is barring Russian state media from running ads on its platforms. Twitter begins labeling tweets that link Russian state affiliated media, uh, link to Russian state affiliated media. Netflix say it won't carry lightly Russian propaganda channels despite local laws. Google yanks two Kremlin backed news channels from YouTube. Uh, Facebook kicks RT and Sputnik um, off its platform. Apple respond to the invasion by pulling RT and Sputnik and disabling maps in Ukraine. Spotify closes its Russia Did office. They, I don't think they. I don't think they completely disabled maps in Ukraine. I thought they, maps they disabled some features that allow could allow 
the Russians to see where people were congregating. So maybe it was traffic or something like that? Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I did slightly skip over the word features in that headline. Yes, it's basically uh, traffic and all that kind of live stuff is gone so that you can't tell where people are. Mm-hmm. Um, Alphabet suspends Google ad sales to Russia. Uh, Russia blocks Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, that was going to happen. PayPal suspend service. uh, Minecraft removed from the Russian app store. And then two related stories. um, Surf Shark Shark's VPN. They have plugins for some of the browsers. Um, One of the new features in the plugins is that they will alert you to if you're you're looking at uh, misinformation on the Russian invasion. And then the other obvious story is that Russians are flocking to VPN apps to avoid state censorship. Shock horror. This has been, I think, really interesting. Like, everybody's trying to do their little part. Yes. You know, hey, I could do this. Hey, I could do that. And and everybody piling on has been has been nice to see. Um, there was an, there's a question, like, have you blocked Russian IPs from your websites? No. Be- I was to- wondering whether it would have any effect if I did, uh, you know, would that be me just doing my tiny little part if I did? Is that doing your part, stopping ordinary citizens from having any contact with sane people outside their country? Well, but that's what a lot of of these things really are, right? Well, it depends, though, because if you're Apple selling iPhones and stopping people buying iPhones is having a real impact on the people in Russia to put pressure on their government, but at the moment, their government is trying to stop them seeing the world from any point of view other than the government's point of view. So if uh, you're a website sharing sane points of view, then I think having access to Russia is actually a good thing. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point because it's information. Yeah, and just community, right? Just <clears throat> It's important for us to remember that the Russian people are not Vladimir Putin. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant at all. But it, it was more in the category of making it more and more annoying to the Russian sure, people sure. that no, they put I, pressure. But it looks like they're aware <laughs> that I probably, I mean, I know it would be a teeny impact, you know, four Russians wouldn't be able to get to the uh, nocilic ask, but I'd just, you know, rolling the idea around. Yeah, no, it, it is right thinking about, though. But yeah, I, I would argue yeah. that what we want to do is we want to ensure that it's obvious that we, you know, we in the West, I'm not speaking for all of Western civilization, go me, we, we in the West. Well, it's per- yeah, have no problem with the Russian people. We have a problem with the Russian government. And so right. we should be friendly and open and, yeah. I guess I'm not really sure where I'm going with that. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm not I, tempted to block Russian IPs on, on Bart. There was one other thing in, uh, that I thought you were going to say when you were talking about Apple Maps is that um, in everywhere but Russia, Crimea oh. is now part of Ukraine. But in Russia, it's still part of Russia. So Apple Maps work in Russia and show Crimea as part of Russia. Which I'm guessing because is Russian law laws. demands it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so they were doing it elsewhere as a favor to Russia. And now they're like, I we don't care. So they basically they're still burned keeping a their maps in, in Russia. They're not Crimea gonna... shown in Russia. Yeah, the... Apple Maps is available. Yeah, so they're not, right, so legally speaking, they were never under any obligation to show it as anything other than Ukraine outside of Russia. But as a courtesy to the Russian government, they showed it as disputed territory. They never went so far as to say it was Russian, they marked it as disputed territory. And now that they just don't care what Russia thinks anymore, they've just gone and went, no, sod sod that, it's part of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So yeah, I, actually, that made me smile. I did put that in in Apple News, but I didn't think you'd let me away with that as a security light, or sorry, as a security <laughs> bits, because I'm supposed to keep these things, you know, on topic. Um, so that's that's all of our follow ups. Um, I have a deep dive for you because there's actually very little actual news. Um, so we have talked a lot about. AirTag over the last while, and we have mostly been talking about it from the point of view of the various protections Apple puts in place and the news it's making and so on and so forth. And the last time we spoke, Apple had just released some more details on some more protections they were going to put in place. And we had that very good article from the New York Times where they tested the different trackers. And lo and behold, Apple's tracker has way better safeguards than anyone else's. And yeah, all of that is still true. But there's been another story sort of in the background that hasn't really got a lot of media, um, which is the fact that there are security researchers not poking at the air tag, but poking at the Find My network. Hmm. And initially they weren't get doing anything particularly exciting, but nonetheless they were learning how it worked and they were experimenting and they had managed to achieve a few interesting things. And this week, well, two weeks ago, um, the 21st of February, so since we last spoke, one of the researchers has succeeded in doing something very much noteworthy. So I think it's a topic we should discuss in a little more detail. So the first thing to say is that most, almost all of the Find My Network has stood up really well to being analysed by security researchers. So... Apple developed a bunch of cryptographically enforced mechanisms within the system to make sure that they can't tell which tracker is which and they they can't even tell where you've been, let alone anyone else. And thanks to, you know, some good cryptography, the only people who can identify a ping as being from a specific AirTag are the owners of the AirTag because it all uses public and private key encryption and the private key for your AirTag, when you pair your AirTag to your phone, the private key is actually put into your secure enclave on your phone. And which means that the only person who can ever actually decrypt the pings emanating from that AirTag are you. Not even Apple can. Help me understand, what does it mean to decrypt the ping? Okay, so the AirTag, every two seconds, the AirTag beacons out over low-energy Bluetooth. And everybody can see that. Everybody sees it, but what they see is a bunch of random gibberish. And they dutifully relay the random gibberish to Apple servers by bouncing it through all the different iPhones around and getting it. So that you know where it is? Right, so Apple server receives all the random gibberish. And each uh-huh. of that, all of that random gibberish, each piece of random gibberish has a random ID. And the only person who can calculate the random ID that matches your AirTag is the person with the private key paired to your AirTag, which is you. So everyone can see this bucket of noise. And you can query the bucket of noise for what you know to be your random ID for every 15-minute period, because they cycle every 15 minutes. So you can then pull from Apple servers all of the pings from your AirTags. And which does what? Which gives you encrypted information, which you can then decrypt to know where the AirTag is. Which is, so that's what I was asking. So decrypting these pings means telling you where it is. Right, but it's two, it's a two-step thing. So only you can even know which pings are yours. Right. And then even okay. if someone were to break that, they would then still have to decrypt the pings to get any information out of them. So it's actually a two-level protection. You don't even know whose pings they are, and you have to decrypt them when you get them. 
all of that is secure. None of that has been broken by the attacks that have been go- or by the research that has been going on. So that is okay. That is a really important takeaway that all of these privacy protections Apple have put in place, they are not what has been messed with by any of this research. So I, I just want to lay that foundation here and say that that aspect of Find My is not broken, which is fantastic. It has been poked at, it has been prodded at, and it has found to work as designed. So that's good. Uh, the other okay. thing you might be asking me, I'm, you know, but Apple said they can help law enforcement. What do you mean even Apple can't track your AirTag? That is true. The only thing Apple can do is say that the serial number is tied to this Apple ID. So law enforcement need to physically have the AirTag in their hand and read the serial number off the back. And then Apple can say whose it is. But even then, Apple cannot with say... A, with a warrant? With a warrant, yeah. They won't answer anything mm-hmm. without a warrant. But even okay. at that point, Apple can't say where the AirTag has been. Because all of the pings are encrypted in such a way that not even Apple know which ping is from which AirTag. The only thing they can say is AirTag with serial number 1234 is Allison's. Okay. Which I think is. A I'm so- just trying to think what. The <clears throat> so what is what does law enforcement do with the knowledge that that's my air tag? So they have found an air tag being used to stalk someone, and they now know whose it is. So they know who they, they know who the victim is. No, the other way around. You have an air tag. Someone is stalking you. They have. Oh, an air- sorry, sorry, sorry. Somebody else is using their air tag to stalk me. Correct. Got you. Okay. Right. But I think some people assume that Apple can tell the police everywhere the air tag has been. They can't. Hmm. They can only say this AirTag is tied to that Apple ID. Interesting. So it's a little huh. subtlety that just occurred to me while I was writing these show notes that I'm not sure is well understood. Anyway, the bottom line is that that level of the whole network is intact. It has not been found wanting, right? So it is, the security researchers are poking and prodding, and it all works. So that put that aside. That is all good. So what have they been able to do? So the the person who is the world expert on Find My, apart from Apple, is a German researcher from the lovely city of Berlin called Fabian Braunlein. And uh, the first thing Fabian discovered was late last year, he was able to emulate the protocol used to send the pings to get pings he created to be transmitted through the network and logged onto Apple servers, and he could then read them off. So he was able to make pretend air tags that sent believable messages that would travel through the network. So that allowed him to use the air the find my network as a very 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 slow data network so he could send secret messages through a back channel at 20 baud. That is <laughs> t- Yeah, I know. 20 bits per second with a latency of 1 hour. Oh my gosh. So you so are, it's like this really low frequency carrier wave. Right, exactly. Now that is a mostly an academic bit of fun, but there is one use for it. If you wanted to hack somewhere really secure with air gaps and everything, then this is not going through traditional TCP IP while it's bouncing around in Bluetooth and stuff. So you could actually get by most companies' data leak protection because this isn't going through the normal infrastructure. So hypothetically, you could get a private key, something small but valuable, which is why I say a private key. And over the space of half a day, you could leak out a private key. So it's not definitely useless. Well, wait a minute. He was he was sending information. He wasn't from a, getting information. No, no, but so he made a device 
that yeah. looks that is as small and portable as an air tag that can succeed in sending information through the Find My network. So you could hypothetically stick that on a cleaner who goes into somewhere secret, or you could you could hack a computer in a place that's very secret. And then you, so when a hacker steals data, they have two problems: they need to get their malware in and actually do the malicious thing, and then they have to get the data they stole out without being noticed. So that's data exfiltration. And you can't just open a TCP connection and shove the data out because that's going to go through every firewall and set off alarm bells everywhere. So you need to find a way of sneaking your information out. And so one way to do that is inside DNS queries. There's all sorts of little tricks. But this is just a new trick, which no one's thought of before. I I don't... uh, So... I've got this little device. Let's say I carry it myself in. Mm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, or I, I stick it to you because you're a sysadmin in okay. this classified program. You're going into this classified area. I stick this in your pocket. You don't know it's there because you're somehow unaware of your own pockets. Okay, you no, okay in- yeah, I'm going to stop you there because I have led you down the garden path. I have, I have misexplained this. So in this case, I'm mixing it up with what's about to happen next. So I, I, I'm, I have confused you, and it's my fault. I am wrong. In okay. this case, okay. the scenario would be you succeed in hacking a Mac or a PC or a laptop or a phone. You succeed in hacking a computer of some sort with a Bluetooth connection that is in a secure place that belongs to the secure place. So it's a server somewhere in a secure factory. or okay. It's a device in the secure factory already. It's not your device. It's a device you've succeeded in hacking. So maybe okay. you dropped a thumb drive in the car park. And someone Whatever. plugged it okay. in. Right? You've hacked into something. Okay. You've hacked in. But you and want to get the data out. Correct. And so this okay. is a way where you could beacon out in Bluetooth, hoping someone is passing by with an iPhone. The iPhone would hear the message. The iPhone would have no internet access because the iPhone's in a secure place. But the iPhone would remember that packet. They'd walk outside. The iPhone would have network Finish access sending. again. And it would send the beacon. And then... Yeah, but they don't allow phones. <laughs> it, look, like I said, this is... This is way, way, way more a hypothetical, hey, this is cool, than a okay. very particular problem, right? So this was last November. I didn't even mention it on Security Bits because okay. it was like, oh, well, that's cool. Okay. And it is cool. All right, so right? then what happened? Right. He didn't stop researching, right? He kept researching. So on the 21st of February, he released another paper. Uh, actually, I should mention he named his uh, first attack Send My, as they play on the words Find My. So. He could send us 20 bored messages on the send my protocol, as he called it. So he now has a new um, workaround that he has dubbed Find You, which immediately sounds a lot less good. <laughs> so what he has succeeded in doing is building a hardware device that is the same size as an AirTag, which is running his own firmware that he has written. And what it can do is it can... So an AirTag is basically a public key and you have the private key. Well, he has written a fake AirTag, which has 2,000 public keys in it. And it can successfully interact with the Find My network. And it can change its identity between those 2,000 keys, all of which he has the matching private keys for. And so his device just pretends to be 2,000 different trackers, but he can get all of the location pings. So okay, wh- because they're his, and he's got the... He's got the matching keys. The, the keys. So how is that okay. helpful? Well, the answer is because 
at the moment, it succeeds in tricking Apple's detection of stuff following me. Because it's not an AirTag following you from the point of view of everyone else. It's an AirTag that shows up once and then is not visible again for ages because it has 1,999 other identities it briefly pretends to be. So how do you know something is following you? You keep a mental note of air trackers I've seen recently. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. So I stick this thing in your pocket. Yeah. And and you're walking around and it's not notifying you because it's actually changing. It's changing. So your phone... It's like I'm sticking an air tag in your pocket, taking it out, putting in another one, taking it out, yeah. putting in another one. Exactly. And so there's no continuous thread for there to be information about a problem. Correct. So 2,000 is enough different identifiers that whatever the number... So inside the iPhone, there has to be some sort of cache of air tags I've seen recently. And that cache is going to have a finite length and is going to be a timeout. If I haven't seen this AirTag again in blah amount of time, take it out of my cache. And by having 2,000 rotating identifiers, it is currently succeeding in the iPhone not noticing. So over five days, this Franken device successfully reported location, but was never flagged as following the person it was planted on. Oh, interesting. Now, this is not catastrophic. There's also things Apple could do to attack this, but Apple are definitely going to have to tweak their algorithm here because people are succeeding in doing... So the Find My Network is successfully doing what it was designed to do, but it is not successfully noticing people doing stuff it wasn't designed to do via the network. Okay. So they need yeah. to tighten so that nothing aspect. is broken about what it does do, but it can now do this other new thing. Yes. And so hypothetically, you could use some sort of authentication mechanism for making it possible to detect a real message from an actual genuine tracker from a fake message. So if Apple were to have a private key that they kept and they were to put the public key into every AirTag, then the AirTag could use that public key to authenticate itself as being a real genuine AirTag. And then the Mm -hmm. iPhone could basically refuse to relay a message that was not genuine. And therefore, all of these fake devices would immediately become useless because their answers would never phone home because every iPhone would get and go, yeah, I'm not relaying you. Uh, Yeah, and then it's useless, right? So there's all sorts of things. Or the other obvious thing is just remember more, you know, in the case of this specific attack, remember more trackers for longer and then 2,000 won't be enough. Right, right, right. So, you know, I mean, it's not catastrophic, but it is definitely... Right now, this minute, you know, this guy in Germany has an actual physical device that succeeds in tracking people using Apple's network without it warning people they're being tracked. So right now, today, one stealthy AirTag exists. Interesting. Uh, and uh, we were searching for the right the right term. We are just going to call him a hacker, not a bad hacker. Right, because yeah, sorry, I don't see hackers pejorative. Yeah, I don't see hackers pejorative. He's a security researcher and he's hacking away at cool tech. Um, right. Yeah, I, I guess I need to be more careful about that because there was a time when hacker was basically a person who likes to poke at things. Like the kind of person who takes an alarm clock apart and puts it back together is a hacker. And a cracker right. is someone who does it maliciously. Ah. Uh, but that's for So we've t- decided to go with hacker and evil hacker. Yeah, that's that works. That works for me. But yeah, so just to be all, clear. This community likes hackers. Yeah, and <laughs> we still have like ones. 
A hacking space is, is the way we describe a really cool workshop used by the maker community. They call them hacker spaces, and they don't mean that in even the slightest pejorative way. And we hear about that on, on tech shows all the time. And no one says, ooh, it's a place where bad guys hang out. It's like, no, it's where cool people hang out. <laughs> yes. So just to be clear, um, Fabian is a good guy doing very cool research and entirely ethically. There is no, there's no shenanigans here. Okay. So there are links in the show notes to Fabian's article and links to a really good human-friendly summary from the good people at Naked Security over at Sophos. Um, in fact, the Naked Security article gives you the whole lead-up of how we got to now, which is actually very interesting. Because the first thing to actually happen was that the community succeeded in jailbreaking AirTag so they could get at the operating system of the AirTag and then use that to work out how the protocol works and use that to start creating fake AirTags. So there's even more to the story than I gave you there, but uh, Naked Security tell it very well. Okay. In terms of action alerts then, just two things. Firefox have patched a double zero-day exploit. Two zero-day exploits in one patch. So uh, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Patchy, patchy, patch, patch, patch. Just like, yeah. Really make sure your Firefox is up to date. And it has now been a week and a half, so I think if you haven't yet, you're probably in big problem. But Word, there is a WordPress plugin called Updraft, which is extremely popular because it's very good at doing WordPress backups. It's a really nice plugin. Unfortunately, I use it? Yeah, because it's good. Unfortunately, there was a slight bug in how it protected your backups, which meant that uh, the raw SQL could be accessed by people who shouldn't be able to access it. And the raw SQL includes all sorts of secrets. Um, and in fact, the backup didn't just include the raw SQL. The backup also included your full config file. And your config file includes your database username, password, and hostname, which then Great. gives complete access to your website where you can do anything. So. Definitely want to patch. Uh, in terms of worthy warnings, then, um, Brian Krebs is the person I'm choosing to link to because he is good at describing these kind of things. Basically, I think everyone at this stage should know that we are all at a heightened risk of coming under cyber attack from Russia at the moment. And the more the sanctions succeed the more incentive there is to attack the West in any way they can. And it's not only going to be large government institutions, it is going to be an increase in ransomware gangs and all those kind of things, because they all work with the nod and a wink approval of the Russian government. So that means that every small company is in danger here. It's not only the mm -hmm. big people. I saw a, um, a tweet that made me realize something that was going on. Um, they said, the tweet said, have you noticed how much nicer the internet is with all the Russian bots turned off? Ah, because of the, I, I realized I'm getting like, like I was checking my mail trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Oh. Because I didn't get mail for like four hours. And I, I never go more than, you know, 15 minutes without getting an email from somebody. And it's not, it's not really spam. It always felt kind of bacony or, you know, or maybe, maybe at least spam, or not spammy, but bacony. Yeah, yeah. Like it was something I sort of was, you know, slightly related, but my, my email is way down right now. Huh. Interesting. I don't know if it's related, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. That is kind of interesting. So yeah, I basically, it's not only governments need to be on the lookout here because ransomware is deeply disruptive and ransomware has a long history of being state-sponsored um, from Russia. So that is mm -hmm. a thing and we should all be aware of it. 
in terms of notable news, then, um, I was in two minds whether or not this was a security medium, but basically, Samsung have been caught with some cryptographic egg on their face. Ooh. So, Trust Zone is the name of the Android equivalent of the Secure Enclave. So, there is not one manufacturer of Android phones, there are many manufacturers of Android phones. So, Trust Zone defines the API that the manufacturers have to implement in order to make their phone work with the security features on Android. So Samsung had to do the trust zone thing. And Samsung used all of the correct technologies. They used, you know, good cryptography. They, however, did not read the manual. (laughs) And Different cryptographic keys all have different giant, big, bold, auga, auga. You know, if using this, you must never do X. You must always do Y. There are rules about how you use cryptographic algorithms so they are actually secure. And one of those rules for a whole bunch of, a whole class of algorithm is that you must never, ever, ever reuse the random token you use as the initialization vector. You absolutely positively have to generate a truly random IV every time you use the cipher. Otherwise, secret information about your private key leaks over time. Samsung provided an API where the app could specify any IV they wanted. So an app could just say, use the initialization vector, all zeros, use it again, use it again, use it again, and slowly the entire private key leaks out. Oh, jeez. So the whole point of a secure enclave is that it's a write-only medium. So you write a private key in, and the private Mm -hmm. key can't come out. The only thing you can do is hand the private key information to sign, and the signed information comes out. That it is a hardware one-way valve on private keys. This vulnerability allows the private key out. They have patched it by removing the API call in modern phones. But if you have an older phone that is not getting a patch, you now need to understand that full disk encryption is broken. So it is effectively like you've gone back in time to the days before full disk encryption. And initially on Security Now, Steve and Leo were like, which isn't too bad. I mean, we lived like that for years. And then Leo was like, yeah, but Steve, when we lived like that, we had almost nothing of value on our phones. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Yeah, so we're not in that world anymore. So I would say, if you are on an older device that is not going to be patched, then you need to ask yourself, am I okay with the fact that I should assume full disk encryption is not working? And if someone steals my phone, they can read all my data. And if there's nothing on your phone, okay, fair enough. But you know what my feeling on phones that don't get security updates? (laughs) Yeah, I've got one that I've, I've probably used it maybe... Five times I bought a, a phone for to be my my hub of my um, what is it called Google Fi mm. card for when I go on travel to foreign countries, and yet none of my foreign that. country travel took place. So I have literally never used the phone except to open it up, try to apply a security patch, and then put it back in the drawer. And now it's not getting security patches. That was the one so I've thing. I've never gotten to use it for anything. Yeah, that was his one job in life, get updated. And I guess it gives you a little view into what it's like to own an Android phone. Ah, oh, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, to have a phone that's only two years old and not getting security updates, that just, that just seems insanity to me. Yeah. I, just, yeah. If my personal feeling is there should literally be laws against that. You should not be allowed to take people's money and then not patch the phone. 
Well, I thought it was fascinating. Was it Samsung that made a huge announcement that they're going to support security patches back four years on their flagship phones? Yeah, on their flagship phones. Not and it was like heralded as a as a breakthrough. Yeah. Apple has regularly been doing six years. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I just find it fascinating how we grade these things on curves. But anyway, you're, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And that is, that is something that worries me about Android phones. It's like, oh, it's secure today. Great. But how long do you keep a phone? Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing I have here in notable security news is just because it's weird. <laughs> NVIDIA... We should have that category. <laughs> we kind of should. So NVIDIA have become the victim of ransomware, which is not unusual, right? That is a very much a dog bites man story. But the attackers did initially ask for a ransom, but then they asked for something very different. What they said was, we have stolen one terabyte of your industrial secrets, and we will release them to the world if you don't remove that feature that stops your graphics cards being used for crypto mining. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting. So NVIDIA is trying to keep crypto miners from buying up all of their graphics cards so that gamers can have them. Yeah. So gamers haven't been able to get graphics cards because crypto miners are buying up all the graphics cards. So they disabled it and now they're holding them hostage, basically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's an attempt. Blackmail. There's an attempt to blackmail them into removing those protections. I don't believe NVIDIA are going to do that, but that is that is actually what is being asked of them in this ransomware attack. I believe there's also private information of employees of NVIDIA in there, not just industrial secrets. That unfortunately seems extremely plausible because if you're able to get deep enough into NVIDIA's network to find out their you know, drivers and all that low-level stuff, then you are probably in deep enough to get out other sensitive information too. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe there's any customer data in there, which is something. But unfortunately, yes, um, employees of NVIDIA... Well, I'm hoping that their HR department has been in touch with their employees and they know what's going on. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But what do you do about it? <laughs> you you just have to live with the knowledge that you've been caught up in one of those. Right. <laughs> yeah. All it does is make you not sleep all at night. I can tell you from personal experience. I'm one, I, I would argue it should also encourage you to use whatever few tools are available to you, like putting locks on your credit history with you know, the, the major credit agencies and stuff like that. I mean, you're not completely powerless, just disappointingly yeah. so. So I just double-checked it. Uh, Bleeping Computer has an article about it. Uh, NVIDIA data breach exposed credentials of over 71,000 employees. Holy moly, that's NVIDIA a lot of people. NVIDIA has 71,000 That's Yeah, employees? that is exactly where my brain just jumped to. It's like, whoa, okay. Email thought- addresses, NTLM password hashes. Ooh many of which were subsequently cracked and circulated within the hacking community. Yeah, that won't take long. It doesn't say personal information. So the biggest danger there, if the email addresses are in there, is spear phishing attacks against key people, because it's probably going to be their corporate email addresses. And the landman hashes is obviously a way to try to do password stuffing attacks against other sites, right, where you reuse the password. And the problem with landman hashes is that landman is a terrible protocol, dear Microsoft. It is really easy to crack those hashes. So in effect, what's happened is all of NVIDIA staff's passwords have leaked. Mm. Because, yeah, those the landman hashes should be shot. <laughs> they just not exist. Terrible, terrible protocol. Anyway, that's, that's, that's me with my work hat briefly on my head. I'll take it off now. <laughs> um, the, like I say, it's been a re- apart, for, apart from a war, it's been a really quiet two weeks of news. 
Um, so the only other thing I have is some interesting insights because ordinarily I probably would have made a much bigger deal of this, but somehow it doesn't seem as important anymore. So before there was an invasion of a sovereign nation, uh, one of the things we were all exercised about was Spotify and their continued support of Joe Rogan and his misinformation machine or podcast, as he calls it. And one of the, you know, there were all sorts of responses like, you know, um, what's his face, Neil Young taking his music down and stuff. But one of my favorite responses was from the, a podcast that I had been a fan of for years, but they were, they're with Gimlet Media and Gimlet have been bought by Spotify and they have been put behind Spotify's paywall. So for a few months, I lost access to this podcast. It's called Science Versus. And they mm-hmm. pick a controversial topic and they just look at the science. And every one of their episodes is cited as if it was a journal paper. So they will often have like 150 citations for a podcast episode of 20 minutes. Wow. So the host's response to the Spotify thing is to re-enable the old feed that is not behind the Spotify paywall and to release... The first thing they did was release a, a Science Versus episode where they take apart the COVID misinformation on the Joe Rogan Show episode that triggered all of the kerfuffle. So they basically attack point by point with, literally with citation and verse, um, the actual misinformation on COVID, which I already thought was cool. And I thought, well done. What a great response. You know, come out from behind the paywall and publish the science. And then this week they did something that is, I think, as cool and way more in keeping with this segment's theme. They did another episode on the science of the diff- the effectiveness of different approaches to fighting misinformation and disinformation. So is it more effective in a measurable way to boot someone off a platform or to ban them or basically all of the different things that different tech companies are doing? How effective is it? You know, removing mm. Trump from Facebook and then making him, you know, making him set up his own, is that more or less effective than what Spotify are doing here? where they're allowing Joe Rogan to keep podcasting, but he's now in a closed community, whereas if they kicked him out, he'd end up on the public internet again. So would kicking him out actually give him a bigger platform than keeping him behind the paywall? (laughs) Right? That's straightforward. Yeah. um, Yeah, so I wonder what the science is behind that. Well, I says it's a whole episode, and they don't it's they don't only look at that question. So that's sort of their jumping off point. They also ask uh, sort of bigger questions of you know, Facebook and all of these companies have been doing things right since the twenty sixteen election. They have been doing things to try fight misinformation, you know, labeling mm-hmm. all those kind of things. Well, what are the scientific studies into the effectiveness of say putting a label on something to say this is misinformation does that make it more or less popular does that make it spread faster or slower because ooh look the, the the people the man says i'm not allowed to see this so does that actually make people second guess it or does that make people share it more oh okay, right? okay. yeah interesting so it is uh, the, uh, look uh, to the people who don't want to listen the, the tldr version is oh my god it's complicated so what the science comes <laughs> so out there's with there's no is, answer? It doesn't say A or B? It doesn't say a universal A or B. What it says is the detail matter in every case. So in the case of Seth Rogen, it's actually quite... Sorry, Joe Rogan. Sorry, Seth Rogen. I keep on doing that. The poor guy oh. has nothing to do with Joe Rogan, and I keep on accidentally giving out his name. Anyway, um, so in the case where it's someone who's being allowed to stay behind a paywall, 
it's probably the case that kicking him out would actually increase his platform. But for Alec Jones, where he was on the mainstream platforms, which were public, and then he was kicked off and forced to go it alone, that massively cut his audience. His audience went down to 10% of what it was before. Right, right. So it depends on which direction you're driving yeah, this information. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, if you look at it, so basically the, you know, Apple were the first to, to, to kick that. It, I just forget his name now. I said it a second ago. Um, Alec Jones. Apple were the first to kick Alec Jones off and then everyone else followed. And that actually has been really successful. So his audience is down by 90%. Oh, wow. So obviously people will say, well, then we should do exactly the same thing with Joe Rogan. Only... Well, actually, he's now behind the paywall. So if you do exactly the same thing, you're going to have a completely different outcome. Yeah. You know, I, I, you you talked about Leo a second ago. He often talked about it's better to, to flush the cockroaches out into the light and the light kills things, but it just doesn't seem to actually anymore. That's not always true because light also makes algae grow. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah, so it does kind of depend. It's it's complicated. It's a really good episode, and it, instead of it being full of hand waving opinion, it's actually based on the science, and it's actually nice to know what what we actually know and what we just think we know. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. And as I say, I just love the fact that the response, despite being a Spotify company, the podcast have basically said we're reactivating our old feed and we're putting this out to the world. And I thought, well done. You deserve so they're they are they completely out from under Spotify now? No, because they're still owned by Gamelet Media here owned by Spotify. They have basically gone rogue and have yet to be kicked out. Oh, interesting. Which is which is very interesting. I mean, the, the, there was a joke from the host at the end, you know, you know, we may or may not talk to you soon, depending on whether or not we all get fired for this. And I'm not <laughs> entirely sure they were completely joking. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, anyway, I, I want to link to it because I, I really respected the show and I was really sorry when they were bought. You know, their parent company was bought and they ended up behind the paywall. And so I just really admire them for what they've chosen to do. So anyway, yeah, there you go. That is, yeah, I like it. Well, we don't have a specific palate cleanser, but I'm going to choose to look at that as a palate cleanser. I wasn't sure if you would agree that it was story. one. So yeah, 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 perfect. Okay, good. Then we consider your palate cleansed. Uh, I'll take it. And uh, unfortunately, that's all I got. Like I say, strange, 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 strange two weeks of security news. Well, there was enough other news, Bart. <laughs> yeah, there kind of was. I, I, I've been doing that thing where I hide under a rock a lot more than usual. I'm, I'm never the most socially outgoing person, but I spent a lot of time ignoring the news and Twitter and social media and just sort of keeping my head down. Yeah. What else can you do? Yeah. Okay. Uh, on that charming note... <laughs> <laughs> you had our palate cleansed and then you brought us right back I know, back it's down. my bad, isn't it? Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm an amateur at this. You think after all these years that I've figured it out. Anyway, what you're supposed to do, and what I'm supposed to say at this stage, is that remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, on that note, we're going to wind things up for this week. Did you know you could email me anytime you want? You could just email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can send me questions. You can send me suggestions. You could send in reviews. Anything you want. I'm really pretty available. You can also follow me on Twitter at PodFeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely no castaways, including Bart. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. 
You can support the show like Nick and Trevor do over at podfeet.com slash Patreon, or you can send a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.